remain standing for the reading of God's word. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following your own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who fell. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to show mercy with fear, saving even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. The word of the Lord. On now, which frightens me, Andy, because that might mean they heard my voice while singing. That would, that would be terrible. No, I'm just joking. It's okay. We're good. Possible. <laughs> Possible and not good. Because I am tone deaf, as I'll get out, but I sing loudly because I want to. <laughs> but, so we're concluding the book of Jude before we end up in Advent, and then after Advent, we'll end up in Jonah, and then Jonah, the first Peter. And but that is all next year. We need to get through the dreaded 2020. I would not be surprised if there was like a do-over year and you call 2020, 2020 again, which would be awful. But anyway, let's move on. So June is concluding today, but I want you to imagine in the beginning here with me, two people living side by side in a downtown apartment building. One is named Tina. Tina, she grew up without religion. Uh, she did fine in school, works as a program manager at a local startup, but her anxiety builds in the daily struggles she feels. She drinks heavily at times, she takes some recreational drugs, but not too harmful. She hooks up with guys on Tinder, brings them back to her place, and she enjoys a relatively frivolous life. She enjoys all things Colorado as well, especially winter sports. She reasons with anyone that wants to chat about her life that she's perfectly happy, she said. I mean, don't judge me, she would come back with. You know, I'm living perfectly happy. She doesn't believe you should be too serious about anything, including religion. She decides that this is her preference not to be religious, and you could be perfectly religious on your own without her uh, weighing in on that. To her, it doesn't seem reasonable to change her life in the present for something that may only be a possibility in the future. She would rather enjoy the life she has now than change it based on something completely unprovable, she said. Religion, in her understanding, is one akin to therapy, and of course, she doesn't need therapy. She sees it as just a way to cover up any guilt or shame. She lives a life of no regret. Next door, though, is Isaac. Isaac's a stand-up guy. He grew up in a religious home. He's very pious, God always, never misses a Sunday. He grew up anxious about whether or not God loves him. But he feels better after he attends church, or through all the good that he has done in the world. He takes time, some time away from those things. Uh, Isaac, though, he feels a little bit insecure. 
still wonders whether or not how God feels about it. Isaac works hard as an accountant. He spends most of his free time reading books or helping the poor in a nearby homeless shelter. He gives generously out of his income. He collects food for the food bank. He discusses religion with all his friends as well. He can't understand why they don't, why his friends don't do the right thing. He looks down his nose at them and says, well, why aren't you nearly as good as me? Why don't you do the things that I do? Especially thinking about that Tina next door. He doesn't drink too much or have too much fun just in case he gets out of hand. He's home safe and sound at 10 p.m. on most nights watching a harmless Netflix show that isn't too scandalous. Isaac just hopes that in the end of his life, he's done enough for God to accept it. He figures he has. Leave you with this question: Which one of these two, between Isaac and Tina, is the rebel? Which one is the rebel against God? Or better yet, which one would you look at and say, "Hey, y'all need Jesus"? What's the answer? Is? The answer is both. Both in their own way are rebels. Both need Jesus. Both are rebelling against God's way of life, His person of salvation. It is Jesus Christ. It is not by good works, nor by a good time, that one is saved. In the end, there will be a verdict on all of our lives. Which life of these was the one of integrity? Which one was the life best lived? According to Christianity, neither. Rather daunting. Christianity isn't about, as some people have said, making bad people good. It's about making dead people alive. And much of our mistakes of Christianity is the belief that Christianity is to make you a good, moral, outstanding person. That's the way I saw religion for many of my years growing up. That's why it was so easy to reject, because I could be a good person without having any religion at all. Christianity is neither that you run from your Creator because you sin, nor is it that you try to make it up to your Creator to cover your sin, but rather the Creator comes and He rips open heaven and earth and dies for your sin to save sinners. From beginning to end, Christianity says that it is by Jesus' works for you that you get in and you stay in from beginning to end. And that is the mistake of many, many are two times at one end and saying, okay, we have gotten in, but now we can live the life of licentiousness. Or that they are saying that now that we get in, we have to work really hard to stay in. During Jude's time, Paul addressed one as a bunch of legalists, and Jude is addressing the others as a bunch of licentious, ungodly people. And to which we need to say that both, the licentious and the legalist, is rejecting God's way. Neither of them cling to the cross. That only... In Jesus' work for you, are you saved from beginning to end? And so we know from finish, from start to finish, it is all of grace. There's a popular saying in Christianity, and 
and on, uh, you know, social media going on. Okay, it's all the rage. And, you know, I kind of like turn my head at it and I just wonder a little bit. And it says this, religion, I messed up. My dad says that. And then it says, gospel, I messed up. I need to call my dad. But I wonder if Jude would look at both of them and say this. I wonder if religion would be better summed up as, I messed up and I see my father running to hug me before I can even pick up the phone. And of course I can't do either because his grip on me is tighter than I could ever imagine. You see, it's this relational bond that holds us back. It is not our steadfast love of God that keeps us in, but rather it is God's steadfast love of us that will hold us tight from beginning to end. And that is what causes us to rest. And that's also what causes us to resist the way and the ditch of falling into legalism or into license. Jude addresses his audience and tells them to contend for the faith against the context of false teachers that are promoting license. His solution is not to tell them, you need to get your act together. He doesn't tell them that. But rather, he says, cling to the one that holds you together to him. It is interesting, though, to think that many of the false ones might have been sitting in the audience. Those false teachers might have been sitting there. And it is almost a guarantee that those who were starting to feel a little wayward, starting to have little questions and dabbling a little bit here and there on the weekend, were most certainly in the audience. And so does he look at them and tell them, you need to get your act together? No, Judy dresses it in order to get them to repent. He says, don't be like those to which all of us need to resist the urge to point fingers in churches like this and instead look at the finger that's pointing back at us as we look in the mirror. Because you and I know that the temptation to license or legalism is not somewhere out there, but is that temptation to wander away from God, to rebel against God, is like a seed planted in all of our hearts. And given the right condition, it will sprout forth and bring up fruit. Fruit of God rejecting sinful rebellion. For most of us, it will start off slow and innocuous. But then, whenever we feel the sting of sin that we have let God down, we will keep upon ourselves more and more shame and guilt, and we will run either some of us further into sin, into license, or further into legalism, trying to balance the scales, saying, oh my gosh, well, I did something bad. What I need to do now in order to make it good is to do good. I need to help Grandma cross the street with her groceries in order that I may be approved before God. But that isn't what Jude is saying here. He is saying, the default mode of every heart is to turn away from God. And that there is no way that you could possibly say that it is out there. 
Or as Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not through classes, not between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all hearts. So, here's the question. What in the world is going to keep a Christian a Christian till the end? What will be the factor that will keep us falling into either disc of license or legalism? For Jude to answer this, he says, it is God who keeps you in. It is the work of Jesus. But, you cling tighter be knowing that He clings to you. You cling tighter because knowing that He clings to you. And so that'll keep us from losing our footing and falling into either end. And so in the end, what enables a Christian to persevere in the faith is determined by what we surround ourselves with and in. If it is constantly surrounding yourself with the understanding that God loves you perfectly and unconditionally, then you will end up living that way. You will display that in mercy, love, and hope toward other people. But if you, I don't know, put yourself into consumerism, and you surround yourself with consumerism all day long, watching good sleep marketing on YouTube, uh, checking out Amazon every 15 minutes, and partaking by clicking the one-click buy now button, you will soon find yourself becoming a buyer, a consumer. And soon you will have your Christmas tree up in September because you can't possibly wait until Christmas to get there. I'm just joking, okay? I've had words with a few people about having the Christmas trees up early. I think it's it's a little over the top, and I joke around that it is private consumerism because we can't possibly wait for Christmas to get here. And so anyway, that's a long deal. Anyway, uh, the other thing is, is we can end up falling into narcissism, believing that the world is about me, and that anyone who possibly pushes against what I think is a toxic person, and I need to get rid of them. And so what you do is you feed the echo chamber of me, 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 me on social media. You post wonderful selfies about you all the time. And every social media post is a selfie about you so you can get likes to reaffirm the kingdom of me. Or maybe you surround yourself in moralism. You listen to the echo chamber of your friends always telling you that this is the right way to think. Maybe you've got good doctrine. You start to build up the self-righteousness on your bookshelf with a number of theology books in order that you can look down your nose at other people that don't possibly know as much as, as you and you are a good person. If they would read more books, they would be a better person. That's just moralism. Or maybe you can surround yourself with libertarianism. That it is all about freedom. You are to be free. And how dare anybody ever tell you what to do? Nobody could possibly tell you what your gender is, what you are to do. How dare you then tell you what your grade is? Because, baby, I'm an all-A student. Okay? Here's the 
simple thing. With Christianity, if you surround yourself with the good news that Jesus has defeated sin and death, that you are accepted as righteous in the sight of God, and that the verdict comes before the performance of Christianity, that that is what you were to marinate in, in order that it seeps into your bones, you will avoid the traps of license or legalism because you will always be relationally tied to Jesus and you will look more like Him. You will find your grip growing tighter and tighter onto Jesus knowing that His firm grip on you will never let up. We hold on to Jesus and resist the pressures because He is holding on to us. We can contend for the faith because the faith tells us that He has contended for us. And so, the persevering Christian life looks like this. Remembering, resisting, and readily showing mercy. Remembering, resisting, and readily showing mercy. First, he says, remember, beloved, verse 17. Jude starts off with reminding the church that the apostles had made this prediction that opposition would happen in the last time or the end time as this change is happening in God's redemptive history. Uh, let me put it this way. If the weatherman tells you that it is going to be cold today, what do you expect? For it to be cold, then what do you do? You grab your coat. And so, Jude says, what did you expect, beloved? Did you expect anything different? Think about it. In redemptive history, when things are changing, that there was always scoffers, ungodly people saying ridiculous things. Think about it this way. Whenever Noah shows up on the scene and he is putting together a boat, there are scoffers looking at him going, yo, uh, we in the desert... Um, I don't think it's going to rain that much, Noah. That's a scoffer. Then, during the time of the Exodus, when they leave, they're like, mm, things are pretty good here in Egypt. And they want to stay. More than that, when they get out into the desert, and that they are headed into the wilderness, through the wilderness, into the promised land, what do they do? They complain. Hey, things were much better in Egypt. We got free food. Well, of course you got free food. You were a slave. Of course you did. That's what's You think about Jesus also. Whenever he shows up on the sea and he says, it is not through license or legalism through which you get to eternal life, but it is through me only. What does, he, what does people say? Crucify him. Send him to the cross. Those are scoffers. You see, forgetting is a prelude to apostasy. Jude is saying you should remember this. Grab your coat. Be ready for people to give you opposition in Christianity. Jude tells them that these people will cause divisions. They're worldly. They're devoid of the Spirit. God's people rather are to be uniting in the faith, reuniting around the core teachings of the faith. Rebellion will either look moralistic or legalistic. Therefore, you can expect, if you hold on to traditional sexual ethics, to be called a bigot. You can, be, you can expect to always feel the tinge, and maybe it'll be greener over there. Maybe life will be more comfortable like this. 
But in the end, what you're, in, what you're doing is you're rejecting the way of the cross. The way of the cross, the way of Christianity will always have opposition. You will always look like some sort of backwater into a non-intellectual in Christianity. So what did Jesus say? Be ready. Be ready. Kierkegaard says, life is only lived looking forward, but is understood only looking back. Look back and understand you're going to face opposition in order that you can be ready to live life going forward. For some of us, we always think it'll be in a better, life will be better in a better place, a different church, a different position. And maybe there we won't face pushback. Newsflash. If you're following Jesus, you will always have pushback. So we remember the call to the Christian life isn't going to be one without opposition. Rather, it is made possible only through opposition. Jesus faced opposition for our salvation. This brings up the idea of whenever the Titanic was thought to be this unsinkable ship, it was the strongest, the biggest, the fastest. And one of the things that they got was a warning before they departed. They were told, hey, there are icebergs in your way. You're going to face opposition. And the Titanic left. And the captain and gooberistic tribe decided nothing can sink us. Heck, don't. They had all the warnings. And they were sunk. And so if Jude tells the people to remember, to remember that you will face opposition in this world, what is he trying to tell you? He's like, don't be frightened. Y'all be ready. You need to hold on. You need, you need to divert course at times. But be ready for opposition. Take this word seriously. Then, he says, do this. Keep yourselves in God's love. But it means resist the part in God's love. Resist the temptation to slide off and fall into the ditch of license or slip into the ditch of legalism. You see, and then he does this. Jude tells them that, that uh, Jude then turns to those who are loved by God and kept by God, and he says, keep yourselves in God's love. And then he gives two instructions on how to do that. Two instructions. And the Greek is, is wonderful, and it's, it's, it's pretty fun to understand, and somehow people still get it wrong. It's wonderful, but it says this. It, by building each other up and by praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love. Okay? So it's by building yourself up in the faith. By praying in the Spirit. While you uh, wait on the Lord. By. Which makes you go, okay, so this is how I should do it. How am I to do it? So the first one, it says this. Build each other up in love. Jesus had said, abide in my love. And if you abide in my love, those who love me are the ones who keep my commandments. Jesus instructed his disciples to teach all, to observe all that he had taught them. In the same way that you kind of listen to mom and dad because you know mom and dad love you, you are to also do this. 
Discipleship is this constant building up. You are to put yourself into discipleship. You are to put yourself under discipline. And, and put this into the faith, the basics of the faith, it says. The holy faith, which we talked about earlier, and we talked about it last week. That this is the basics of the faith, that Jesus is Lord, Jesus saves, Jesus is God. Jesus' resurrection means the coming of new life and the renewal of all things. And whatever you take into yourself, you will become life. And you're to do this cooperatively and together. In Ephesians 2, it says that you are a spiritual house built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus being the chief cornerstone, that the rest of the house is built up and lined up according to Jesus. But it is built upon the testimony of the apostles, the testimony of the apostles and prophets about who? Jesus. First Peter 2.5, it tells them that they are living stones built upon the apostles. Philippians 4 then tells them that they are to, uh, whatever is true, whatever is worthy, that they are to think on those things. Romans 12.2 tells them that do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the, by, but be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Psalm 1 tells them that they are to, the person who meditates on the Word of God is to be, or is a person who is like a tree planted by streams of water whose leaf does not wither and gives fruit at its given time. And so what does it mean to be built or to build each other up is that we are to encourage one another in discipleship. Here, let me put it another way. Um, I do not have enough hours in the day to actually do the work of ministry. And in fact, in Ephesians 5, it tells us that. It says that the shepherds are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So who's doing the work of ministry? Is it MDiv boy preacher man over here? No, it is not my duty. It is yours. Together, we are to disciple one another for the building up of the house. In Colossians, it says, do not get drunk off wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. How? What does that look like? It says this. It says, by greeting one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, to speak to one another the truth of God's Word. And so you get into the circle. So what do you do? What am I doing here? Uh, get into a city group. Join a cohort group that we're starting up again in January. Alright? And so, what this means is getting yourself into the gym of God's Word with some good friends and get swole in the faith. Okay? Get yoked on Jesus. That's cool. Instead of getting all filled up in things like Fox News, Twitter, rather you should start to study. Join a cohort group. Listen to good podcasts. Read the Westminster Confession of Faith. Learn the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Sing some good worship songs. Heck, if you like Christian rap, listen to Shia Lin's lyrical theology, you will learn something. Homeboy talks about the extra Calvinisticum in a song called The Hypostatic Union. Okay? Which is wild. Like, y'all need to listen to that. Okay? It means spend more time in discipleship than on social media and video games. Why? Because your mom and dad are correct. TV will rot your brain. Build one another up in the Holy Spirit. 
Next, he says, by praying in the Spirit. Uh, it does not mean that you speak in some sort of foreign language. Rather, this means that by the Spirit who unites us to Christ, that we are to be in under His authority, that we are to pray in dependence on God, yearning and looking for His kingdom come and His will to be done. Ephesians 6.18 says, Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. If Jesus is teaching us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And if that isn't in the Spirit, there's a problem. Okay? So every, every prayer is to be in the Spirit. And what we will find as we pray, as we call out to God, as we yearn for His help, as we depend on Him, and as we cling to Him in prayer, we will find out that our prayers are not so much to get stuff, but to get God. We pray not to align God to our heart, but our heart to God. Not to get our will, but for God's will. And He says, how are you to do this? When are you to do this? While you wait on God, it's like waiting for someone. You wait for the expected return of a loved one. And so you prepare your house for thanksgiving because your loved ones, they be coming. And so you are busy doing something because someone is coming. Okay, someone's saying, like, dude, my in-laws are coming, and, uh, all right, that's weird. I don't want to prepare for that. Okay, um, think about it this way. Many of us are like wandering uh, adventurers out in the wilderness. We were only supposed to be gone for 24 hours, but then us in our little three-season single busy are stuck out in the middle of nowhere for four days, low on food. It starts snowing, and we can't find the trail. And so what do we do as we're waiting for rescuers? You know what you do? You find shelter. You look for food. You try to keep yourself warm, knowing that someone is coming for you. So you make yourself busy waiting because you know somebody loves you and has sent for help to come get you. So you wait. He says, while you wait, you hold on to hope by loving others. By doing the ordinary means of grace, old traditional words, you listen to God's word, you pray, you serve with other brothers and sisters, and you partake of His sacrament, God's love made visible in bread and wine. Please take that in mind. And lastly, we readily show mercy. It says, on those who doubt, those who waver, they're still in the faith. He says this, those who waver, those who doubt, he doesn't say abandon them. He doesn't say keep your distance from those folks because he, they're dangerous. So watch out. you got to keep yourself pure. He doesn't say that. Neither does Jews say scold them in order to get them in line to do what they need to do as if they are a wayward child. Nor does he say, bring out the reform dogmatics that you can learn them something. No, he doesn't say any of that. But rather, he says, have mercy on them. 
You know, it doesn't take a master's degree to be present with those who are troubled in the faith. I'll even put it this way. At times I wait. At times I mess up. But what do I need? Do I need friends to slap me around and yell at me? Do I need friends to keep their distance? No. I need friends who have been shown the mercy of God to break into my life by showing mercy, by showing up, by being present. It doesn't take an end to touch someone, to call someone. The greatest apologetic for the faith at times is that you are there when it hits the fan for others. Just in the same way, Jesus doesn't abandon those who doubt, nor does he scold them, but he has mercy on them. The same way he has mercy on you and me. There's a story about John the Apostle who leaves a young man named Marcus in the charge of another. And this other guy is discipling him, and then one day Marcus falls into the hands of a band of robbers or pirates, land pirates. John has taken off, he's gone into another country. But Marcus really gets in and he becomes violent. And Marcus is a thief. Marcus becomes the leader of this group of brigands. Yeah, this is recorded, I think, in Clement of Alexander. You can actually follow, follow along and read on this. It's kind of strange. And so John is getting old. He comes back and he asks the man, Hey, uh, where is Marcus? Uh, and he's like, well, uh, Marcus, Marcus, uh, he's a robber now, and he's the head of a gang that are out in the mountains that will waylay a bunch of people as you come on the road. And so what does John do? Does John keep his distance? No. You know what John does? He gets on a horse, and he hikes out into the mountains. The gang comes up upon John, and they say, give me your stuff. Basically, I don't know exactly what they say. But John says this. John, John gets off his horse, looks at them, and says, take me to your leader, Marcus. Right? And so they go, and they bring John to Marcus. And Marcus, as he is coming out of this cave to find out who wants him, Marcus, this bad man who's killed other people, he's super tough, but has been raised in the Christian faith. Marcus comes out and then suddenly sees John and does one of those reverse numbers. Like, oh, no. Right? And John then takes off sprinting after him. An old man on uneven ground with a gang of people who are likely to kill him starts running after Marcus who is running off. And isn't that the way that God does it with each and every one of us? Sprints after us while we were wandering away. Shows mercy. John brings them back. And it was merciful to show up and go after him. And that's why it says, to some others, you save them, snatch them out of the fire, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. 
It means you have got to watch out for legalism and license on both sides. And you cling to the cross. We show mercy because God has shown mercy to us. If you are planted in the soil of God's mercy, then you will produce the fruit of mercy. In all other religions, it depends on your love for God. Only in Christianity is the good news dependent on God's love for you. And the praise of this victory from beginning to end, which is always all of grace, which is on the person of Jesus, the victory belongs through God alone in the person of Jesus. And you and I, as we resist legalism and license and hold and cling to Jesus, to just mop up duty, y'all, the victory is already sure. Why? Because He is the one who endured the scoffing on the cross. He's the one who endured the loss of love when He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is the one who is enduring the flaming sword of God's judgment on the cross that you and I deserve. Jude ends with a doxology of praise to God. Because the verdict for God's people is not their performance, but Jesus' performance for them. We will all be judged in the cosmic courtroom. And either we will represent ourselves, or Jesus will be our advocate. The good news is that is not that you have to get it all together. Nor is it that you have to keep it together now that Jesus has got you in. But rather that Jesus was torn apart so from beginning to end you will cling on to Him because He holds you together. And He's the one who makes you new and continues to renew you by the power of the Spirit. It's as if the message of Jesus. Hold on to that which you cannot lose. Because if you could have lost your salvation, you would have. You would have. And we know it is true. Because God's Word says it. Be strong and courageous, it says, for I am with you, the Lord, says to Justin. And the psalmist is told, He's the one who leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Jesus says He will never leave nor forsake us. Nothing snatch them out of, our, out of His hands. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, Paul declares. He will make all things new. He will wipe away every tear. And behold, He says, I am coming soon. Be strong and courageous. Hold on and cling to the One who is continually and always and forever hold you tight and will never let you down. Almighty and gracious God, would you be with us now as we eat and drink this meal and we are reminded of your love. Be with us. Help us to see with eyes of faith and help us to grip you tighter as you hold on to us knowing you will never let us go. Christ's name.